Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. Quinquagesima, Luke 18, 31 to 43. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Acts 17. Thus Paul preached in the public marketplace of the world-renowned city of Athens. They are great, important truths that the apostle expressed. We see that after God had created the world, he did not leave his work, but also preserves and rules it. If we view the nature of this world with our eyes of our reason alone, it appears as if men decide matters for themselves as if God were only an idle spectator of what men do. If in the light of God's word we view the doings of men with the eyes of faith, we see something far different. We see, as the apostle says, that God, even from eternity, has foreseen everything that occurs in time. He has set his goal for everything and decided for every person how long and in what age he should live. While men seemingly begin, continue, and carry out everything according to their own free will, God has them secretly in his hand, and so guides them that they must carry out his eternal decree. Not only does God control the good, but also the evil. Either he hinders it or sets bounds to it, or he lets it happen and thereby carries out his judgments of grace and wrath. We have a wonderful example of this in Joseph's brothers selling him to Egypt. They plotted evil against Joseph, but God meant it for good, and thereby carried out his judgment of peace, not only concerning Joseph, but also his whole chosen people of Israel. While the world and hell battle and rage against God and take his honor from him, hurl him from his throne, and try to destroy his kingdom, these powers must, without knowing and wishing it, fight only for God, promote his honor, strengthen and increase his kingdom. We see this in the bloody persecutions of the first three centuries. The Christian church was to have been rooted out, and just because of that, she sent down her roots only deeper, like a tree shaken by storms. When at the last day the earthly life of mankind will have ended, the foes of God with terror, but the elect with rejoicing, will clearly see that nothing happened without God's will, that everything good and evil had to serve him, and that he led everything to a wonderful and blessed goal. How confident the Christian can therefore be? 
though something happens according to or against his will, he knows that it happens according to God's good and gracious will. Though he experiences fortune or misfortune, he knows that what God's counsel has decided in regard to him has come to pass. Though he has many crafty and powerful enemies, he knows that without God's permission, they could not harm a hair of his head. Though men have robbed him of everything, goods, honor, and joy, he knows that all this is taken from him only through men by his God, who can wish him no evil. Though the future may be dark, gloomy, threatening, and dangerous, he knows nothing will come to pass but what God in grace has destined for him. For our salvation, God has decided our destiny, joys, and sorrows from eternity. This is easily recognized, since we are all sinners and must praise God when he leads us through affliction into his blessed kingdom. Does it not remain an insolvable riddle that even the guiltless, the righteous, the pure among us, those who are not pure, in whose mouth was found no guile, yes, who was the most holy Son of God himself, that even Jesus Christ entered into his glory through suffering? Our gospel reading today gives us an answer to this question. Let us now hear the answer. Luke eighteen thirty-one to 43 And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing the crowds going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want for me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. My friends, we see in this text that Christ was busy with two kinds of blind men. In the first case belonged a physically blind person who sat by the roadside and begged. His eyes the Lord miraculously, quickly, and suddenly opened with three words, Recover your sight. The disciples belonged to the other class. At that time they were still spiritually blind regarding Christ's suffering and death. What did Christ do in order to open these blind spiritual eyes? He did two things. First, he also spoke to them, Recover your sight. Hereupon he called their attention to the fact that, according to the prophets, he had to suffer and die. Of course, the disciples did not immediately receive spiritual sight, as the blind beggar received the physical. It costs God himself more to enlighten, convert, and sanctify a person than to create and heal him physically. However, we know that Christ's second remedy was not forever in vain. 
When Christ, after his resurrection, used this remedy again, when he reminded them of the prophets, this worked so wonderfully that it was though scales fell from their eyes. Christ's suffering and death no longer seemed dark and foolish, but became as clear as day, the most blessed truth that they zealously preached to the whole world. Permit me today, on the threshold of the Lenten season, to show you how important it is that Christ's suffering and death was foretold by the prophets of the Old Testament. This is important for three reasons. We see from it that Christ's suffering and death was, one, appointed beforehand by God himself, one, extremely necessary for our salvation, and one, valid for all times. We pray, Lord God, Heavenly Father, who let the sufferings and death of your dear Son be foretold by your holy prophets, let us also know the great secret lying therein to our salvation. Open the eyes of our souls to see that the suffering of your Son was one foreseen by you from eternity, extremely necessary for our salvation, valid and saving for all times. May not the word of the cross be for us, as for the blind world, foolishness and an offense, but become divine power and wisdom. To that end, bless the word now spoken in weakness, for your sake, the sake of truth and grace. Amen. In our day, more and more self-educated men maintain that hitherto the life of Christ has never been presented correctly. In the past, it has been thought that one sees nothing but divine mysteries in it. What they claim is absolutely wrong. Since Christ was a true man, the only true presentation of his life would be to believe that it is really human and present it that way. They also look at Christ's suffering and death that way, that Christ had to suffer so many and such frightful things happen quite naturally, an accidental, easily explainable matter. Christ had publicly expounded a doctrine that was most offensive to the vicious rulers of the church and state. It evoked the bitterest vindictiveness in them. The natural result was that Christ was sacrificed to the cunning, power, and cruelty of his opponents. When he was nailed to the cross, he had to pay for his ideas with his life. However, my friends, all these are the useless fabrications of the most blind and wanton unbelief. What does Christ himself say in our text of his suffering and death? We read, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. There you see that Christ's suffering and death was announced long ago by the prophets of the Old Testament. It was determined long ago by God himself, yes, from eternity, and revealed in time through his servants. Christ expressly says it was predicted not only by the prophets, but through the prophets by God, whose tools the prophets had merely been. Christ's suffering did not happen as other human things do, which in a certain sense occur accidentally, that is, in such a way that they, under other circumstances, could have happened another way or not at all. Christ did not suffer and die because his foes desired it, outwitted and overpowered him, but because God wanted it, and hence because Christ himself wanted it. This fact is shown us at other occasions. When Christ appeared the first time in Nazareth preaching publicly, his hearers became so angry that they violently dragged him to a steep slope of their city in order to hurl him into the abyss and kill him. Since the hour determined by God for his death had not yet come, he passed through their midst. He went away. Luke 4. 
But later, before a large crowd in the temple, Christ confessed, Before Abraham was, I am, John 8, hence that he is the eternal God, the mob picked up stones to kill him. But since also the hour decided upon by God for his suffering and death had not yet come, he suddenly made himself invisible. We read, But Jesus himself hid and went out into the temple. Yes, when they finally came to arrest Christ with three words, I am he, he hurled the whole armed mob to the ground. Christ thereby shows how easily he could have fled even then had he wanted to. Yes, had it not been his father's and therefore his own will to suffer and die, no chains could have bound him. No army, no matter how great, could have captured him. No power on earth could have nailed him to the cross. With a single word, yes, by his mere will, he could have crushed and annihilated his foes. For this reason, Peter says in his Pentecost sermon, Acts 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And shortly thereafter, all the apostles in prayer said that Herod and Pilate had done what God's hand and counsel had determined before to be done. There is no doubt when in our text Christ says to the disciples that through his suffering and death everything would be accomplished that was written by the prophet, he wishes to teach us and them that it was not accidental, forced upon him by human plans, but it was predetermined, decreed, and foreseen by God himself. Do not suppose that Christ's tormentors and murderers are exonerated from their horrible deed and that blame rests upon God. No, God had decreed Christ's death. He, however, did not produce the malice of Christ's enemies. Rather, foreseeing it, he used it to carry out his eternal degree through them. Just as he who throws a lamb into the jaws of a rabbiting animal does not make first it ravening, but only lets it mangle the lamb, so that also the Heavenly Father deliberately surrendered Christ, the Lamb of God, to the scribes and Pharisees, the chief priests and elders of Israel, to Herod and Pilate, as to ravening animals. He did not produce their desire for blood, but only allowed them to mangle, lacerate, and kill this lamb according to their malice. From the fact that Christ's suffering and death was predicted by the prophets of the Old Testament, we see that it was also one absolutely necessary for our salvation. Permit me to speak to you of this. That Christ had to suffer and die is clear from the mere fact that it was foretold by God through the prophets. What God, who cannot err, much less lie, foretells, cannot be left undone. It must take place. Christ also wants us to understand that, according to prophecy, he must die, because this was absolutely necessary for the redemption of the world. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Christ says in our text, Why does he simply not say, Of me, rather than about the Son of Man? Christ is referring the disciples to that one promised Son of Man, namely the seed of the woman who was promised to fallen men in paradise. He would crush the head of the serpent, and it would kill him by a poisonous wound in his heels. Moreover, Christ clearly refers his disciples to all the prophecies that Christ should be born, that son should be given for fallen men. 
He, as Isaiah writes, should be wounded for our transgressions and be bruised for our iniquities. Yes, his life should be sacrifice for sin. Yet why does Christ refer the disciples to this? There can be no other reason that they should know that his suffering and death is one absolutely necessary for the salvation of the world. Christ wants to say that as certainly as he is that promised Son of Man, that is, the promised Redeemer, so unavoidably, so positively necessary is it that he, according to the prophets, also suffer and die for the redemption of the world. That we do not err in this matter, we see from the many details of the passion and resurrection stories of the Lord. When in Gethsemane, Christ began his spiritual suffering, he said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But what happened? The cup of this unspeakable suffering did not pass away. Christ must empty it. God's answer to Christ's imploring prayer was, No, my dear Son, in whom I am well pleased, it is not possible if the world is to be redeemed. When shortly thereafter, Peter struck blindly with his sword in order to free Christ from bodily suffering, Christ himself said to Peter, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled, that it must be so? Matthew 26. And finally, when he was risen from the dead, he said to the disciples on the way to Emmaus, who still could not reconcile themselves to Christ's suffering, O foolish ones! and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Luke 24. Even Christ's enemies had to confirm that here a divine must prevailed, as Matthew informs us. At first they did not want to kill Christ at Passover, when so many people were gathered together. When they took counsel on the matter, they said to one another, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. But see, God's hour, the hour of the redemption of the world, had struck. Hell was let loose against Christ, even against their will. Satan's tools and captives had to bring that hellish work to completion. Oh, my friends, what an important truth it is that Christ's suffering and death was one absolutely necessary for our salvation. First of all, we see that God is not at all, as most suppose, a loving, indulgent Father. No, He is truly a holy and upright being. He really hates sin, and His wrath waxes hot on its account down to the lowest hell. Of a truth, sin is no joke to God, no trifle that He is willing to overlook. Had Christ not been willing to take on himself the sins of all men, to atone and let himself be punished for every sin through unspeakable suffering and the most painful death, God could not have saved a single person, nor would he have wanted to. Each sin is so offensive to God's holiness that he is a being of such strict holiness that he would and could rather let the whole sinful world be lost than let one sin be unpunished. What the Holy Scriptures say of God's wrath and fury against sin are not merely empty figures of speech, but the frightful, terrible truth. Man's sweet dream is that God is a gracious being whom no one need fear. Their God is a phantom, a miserable product of their own mind. For how God really is, we see in the bloody tragedy on Golgotha, where the only begotten Son had to atone for the sins of men, if sinners should find grace with God. Moreover, 
We also see how foolishly they act, who wish to remain in one or the other sin and still rely on God's grace. Such people make a devil out of God. For it is not the holy God, but the devil, who pays no attention to sin. He who knows, or to whom it is clearly and convincingly shown, that something is sin, but does not want to leave his sin and still comforts himself in God's great grace, sins against grace, tramples on God's Son, who had to bleed for his sins, considers the blood of the testament as unclean, and abuses the spirit of grace. Nothing else remains for him but a terrible waiting for the judgment and zeal that will consume the offender. You, therefore, who know that Christ had to suffer and die for sin, do not play with any sin, though it may appear as small indeed, or else you will experience in the hour of death, or surely on the day of judgment, that your faith was a fancy, your comfort a delusion, your hope a dream. It is true that Christ's suffering and death were already foretold by the prophets of the Old Testament. This is, finally, so important because we learn from this that it is also valid and comforting for all time. And permit me to speak to you of this. Many suppose that if if faith in Christ's reconciling suffering and death were actually the only means by whereby every person can be saved, Christ would have had to come into this world immediately after the fall. How could faith in something that happened 4,000 years after the fall be the only redemption for the fallen? This objection, however, would have force only if men had known nothing of Christ's redemptive suffering and death during those 4,000 years. That is not the case. Already in paradise, help through a suffering and dying man was promised to the first people. Afterward, all the prophets most accurately described his reconciling suffering. He, as Christ says in our text, would be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. If we go into the writings of the prophets and the prophetic psalms, we would find all this and many more details of the suffering and death of Christ so fully depicted that it appears as if the prophets themselves had accompanied Christ from Gethsemane to Golgotha. Why did God have this foretold by the prophets so exactly? First of all, that those who lived before Christ came, could have the certain comfort of the forgiveness of their sins, divine grace and eternal salvation through their faith that hoped in the saving, substitutionary, and reconciling suffering of him who should come. And by this faith, all patriarchs, all prophets, and all saints were saved. On the other hand, all who were lost before Christ's appearance were damned only because they wanted to know nothing of that comforting prediction of the prophets, despising and deeming it a meaningless fable. And after Christ's appearance, the prediction of Christ's sufferings and death have lost none of their meaning and power. Rather, they become truly meaningful and effective. After all these prophecies were fulfilled to the last letter, so to say, before the eyes of the whole world, after he who was crucified in weakness also actually arose in glory from the dead on the third day. With heightened effect, the fulfilled prophecies call to all men. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Be reconciled to God, 
2 Corinthians 5. The prophets' predictions of Christ's suffering and death have become a well from which even at the time of the Old Testament a wide, full stream of grace and salvation flowed forth. They invited all nations to slack their thirst from it freely and without price. However, in the time of the New Testament, prophecy and apostolic preaching flow as a double stream wherever there are sinners who need salvation by grace. The crucified, as it were, stands at the center of the world his, world's history as the banner of all nations to which the prophets point forward and all apostles point back as to the Lamb of God who bears the sins of all the world, who, as John writes in Revelation, was slain from the beginning of the world. Hence, my dear hearers, let this move us in the coming Lenten season to search the writings of the prophets daily and seek therein the suffering and dying Christ. Let us also, first of all, as before a mirror, search for the horror of our sins and God's wrath over them. Then, let us behold the complete reconciliation of our sins and the riches of divine love and grace. To do this, we are all by nature completely blind. But let us with the blind in our text call upon Christ in faith to open our eyes. We will also finally experience the power of those blessed words, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.